Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. You are his beloved, right? You be loved, right? I always say, you be loved. We are the children of God. And uh, we started a series a couple weeks ago called Exiles. Everybody say Exiles. You know, this is a series out of 1 Peter, and you say, what is an exile, a sojourner, a pilgrim, an alien, someone who has been diasporaed, so to speak. They've been pushed out. And the context of the letter that you and I are studying is uh, believers, first century believers who have literally uh, faced an overwhelming persecution, sons and daughters being killed, killed for their faith, and they're sent across the greater Mediterranean area, what we call the ancient Near Eastern world. And they're They're diaspora, they're spread about. And so the Apostle Peter is writing to them a letter, a letter of encouragement. And uh, it has been said by several people in our congregation over the last few weeks, man, this is one of my favorite books in the whole Bible. And uh, it is an absolute gem. It is a powerful, powerful book. And uh, week number one, if you weren't with us, I preached a message called It's a Group Project out of 1 Peter 5 and talked about how we overcome anxiety and that it is not an an isolated uh, fight. It is a group fight of vulnerability and confession and accountability. And then uh, week number two, Michelle did an excellent job of preaching to us a message on Mother's Day out of 1 Peter 1 about establishing the kingdom of God in our homes. And last week, Pastor Chad preached a message called Weapons of Exile. He talked about the weapons of our warfare. Today, I wanna continue on in that series with a passage in 1 Peter 1 and also 2 Peter 1. If you didn't receive a message card upon your entrance, you might be able to raise your hand if there are cards available. Um, Yeah, we have some cards available, so I think most people have a card. Excellent, cool. Anybody excited about the card? I asked them that in the earlier gathering. You know, we've been in this this last few weeks and not passing out cards, so um, that was well worth you just waking up and making it to church this morning, all right? getting your little message card. So 1 Peter chapter 1, if you want to turn there and follow with us in the Bible as well, um, we're going to read 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to read from the New Living Translation. I want to say thank you to those that are live streaming uh, as well today. For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life that you inherited from your ancestors. And your life Your ransom was not paid for by mere gold or silver. I love that adjective, right? The mere gold or silver, which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless lamb of God. God chose him, the father chose Jesus as your ransom long before the world began. Notice that. God chose Jesus as the lamb to be slain before creation. But now, In these last days, he, Jesus, has been revealed, not for God's sake. The Son is always one with the Father and the Spirit. He has been revealed for your sake, for my sake, for our benefit, for our salvation. So this week I was was thinking to myself, why can falcons fly and chickens can't? You ever just been... You ever just been kind of caught up in deep thinking like that? You know what I'm talking about? Just kind of existential, kind of deep thinking. Just so profound, right? And for me, my wife, she would attest to this. I'm a, I'm a researcher. I love the research, okay? I'm not the smartest 
you know, toil in the shed, but I can research. I can find it out and hopefully juxtapose the positions and look at whatever it is that I want to research. And so I started researching, right? Why can't chickens fly? Which is honestly what I really want to talk to you about today. Can chickens fly? Because I believe, honestly, if you can solve this question and get an answer to this question, you can deal with most of the issues in your life. See, technically, technically, chickens can fly, just not well. Or another way I think more accurate to state that is they could fly, but they forgot how to fly. Or we could say it this way, they were designed to fly, but they were redesigned by the environment that they lived their lives in. Chickens lost their ability to fly when they became domesticated and fat. Now you take that verse and apply it however you desire, okay? They lost their ability when they became domesticated. Their wings became too weak and their their feet adapted, microevolution, not macro, but micro, their feet adapted to walking. In other words, we could say very accurately today that easy feeding and safe living stole their flight, stole their ability to be what they were created to be. They no longer needed to hunt because they were fed by humans, and they were no longer hunted, and they developed survival instincts because they were being protected by humans. So they became a source of food, the most popular source of food. But the peregrine falcon is altogether different. Now, I love falcons. I've been fascinated with falcons for years. So this year, or this week, I, I drew and painted a falcon. And uh, right now, y'all bear with me. I'm, just, I'm, I'm trying to hold myself accountable and get better. But I, I'm, I'm, I'm painting through all the Psalms. So I did Psalm 147. His word runs swiftly through us. And, and I painted this peregrine falcon. And I wanted to show the image of movement. That the peregrine falcon is not only the fastest bird in the world. It's the fastest animal in the world. Do you know it flies over 200 miles an hour? They've been clocked at like 205 miles an hour when it elevates to its highest level and then it dives in a hunt. See, the peregrine falcon is the diametric opposite of a chicken. Totally opposite. And it finds its greatest speed when it's focused on its objective, picking up its prey. Now, y'all, it would be absurd for a chicken to come to church every Sunday and hear inspirational messages and leave the church and say, oh, I'm going to be and live like a falcon. That would be absurd. It would be absurd to tell people who are chickens or chickens themselves that if you just think like a falcon and speak like a falcon and tell yourself a falcon, then all of a sudden you're going to live like a falcon. But I think if you'll follow with me, this is what we've done so often in our churches. This is how we've approached the issue of spiritual maturity. We've created a world where we hope that we can be inspired enough and we can be inspired enough to, to stop living like chickens. And we've been told that if you act like a falcon and speak like a falcon and declare you're a falcon, then all of a sudden you'll be a falcon. But I want to tell us, you'll really just be an awkward, disappointed chicken needing massive therapy for the rest of your life. You're going to be major, major therapy because of the conflict and the persistence and the frustration of not being able to live that way. See, I think many of us, stick with me, I think many of us, we think of faith as if God is telling us chickens that we need to start acting like falcons. 
That's what salvation is. That God has created us as chickens and he's put upon us rules and regulations to live up to a standard of a falcon. And, and then he holds us accountable to it knowing that we can't reach it and achieve it. And we live frustrated lives. So we live in this kind of perpetual frustration because we cannot be what we are being asked to become. And, and if we're honest, inside of us sometimes there feels like this peregrine falcon. There feels like this desire to soar. It's ready to be awakened. But the problem is, not only are we sometimes chickens acting like falcons, but other times I think we're actually falcons trying to act like chickens. And we're listening and we're entering into as a, not only a church, but a nation and a world, a totally new season. I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that we are moving into a new season. I mean, life as we knew it, it has changed drastically. If you study history, you'll see this, right? The whole lesson of history is that we don't learn from history. Right? I mean, that's all history can be summed up in one sentence. We don't learn from it. That's what we do learn from it, that we don't learn. But it's different. It's going to be different. And the church of Jesus Christ, it's going to be different. It has affected the globe. We don't want the old to come back and be our present. I, I personally don't want things to go back to the old normal. The old normal wasn't really working. Old normal didn't really invigorate me that much. And I'm convinced, I'm, I'm utterly convinced that we in the church are still having the wrong conversation. We're having the conversation between right and wrong, good and bad. And Jesus is trying to get us to have the conversation not between right and wrong, good and bad, but old and new. It's not a right and wrong. It's not a chicken and falcon conversation. It's an old and New conversation. See, the kind of conversation Jesus wants is there was an old life, but now there's a new life. Just like in nature, a peregrine falcon can never become a chicken, and a chicken can never become a peregrine falcon. If there is not a old and new, then you're just the same as you were, and there's no new anything. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is that old things have passed away and all things have become new. There's this particular passage in 2 Peter. We read 1 Peter 1. Now let's read 2 Peter chapter 1. And it's a really particular passage. This is what the apostle Peter says, verse 2, 3, and 4. He says, may God give you more and more grace and peace as you grow. Notice that. Notice grace and peace are married in the kingdom of God. Why? Because it's not until we get loved by someone who is not loving us for our potential, but is showing grace to us that we actually find a contentment and peace internally. So grace and peace are always multiplied together. As I grow, what's the next part? As you grow in your knowledge of God. So what that means is the measure of your growing is parallel to the measure of your knowing. So the measure of growing in God is totally dependent on the measure of your growth in the knowledge of God. That as I grow in knowing, I grow in life. And this is what he's saying, that grace and peace would be multiplied to you. Watch this. By his divine power, watch this, God has given us everything we need. He's given us everything we need for living a godly life. We've received all of this. How? How? By a certain spiritual experience, by an altar moment. I'm not making those low. I'm not trying to demean those experiences. We believe in them wholeheartedly. But no, we've received all of this by coming to know him. Coming to grow in relationship with him. Watch this. The one 
who called us to himself, did not call us to an intention, did not call us to a purpose, did not call us to a destiny, but he called us to himself by means, what? The means in which we approach him by means or the essence of his invitation of his marvelous glory and excellence. Woo, there's a lot in that scripture, isn't there? So much we could talk about in that one passage. But what I want to do is if I could summarize, leave that up a moment, summarize those three verses in one phrase, in one statement, I would say this. If you want to understand truly the process of becoming all that God created you to be, you need to understand that when you enter into a relationship with Christ, when you allow the God who created you to recreate you, to make you brand new, when you allow God to do that, everything you need to live to fulfill your destiny, it is already in you we don't like that I knew I'd get like just a half yes right there it's already in you I could summarize 2 Peter 1 with it's already in you it's in you see a huge problem watch this in religion is that religion works from the basic assumption that it's not in you so what religion says is, is you must be conformed to whatever pattern is desired because you will not inherently become what God is willing you or calling you to become. Religion, can I say it this way? Is a lack of confidence in God's ability to recreate you. Religion tells you as a chicken to act like a falcon, not giving you the power to become the falcon. Religion tells you right and wrong, good and bad, not old and new. Religion's trying to get you to adapt and modify behaviors to act internally like a falcon when your nature is a chicken. And God is saying, no, this is an old and new conversation. This is an essence conversation. And this is the tension we have, church. Listen, we don't know what happened to us, so we don't know how to access what is in us. And if I don't know what happened to me when I got born again, I can't access what's already in me when I got born again. I'm unable. I'm unable because of my lack of understanding to grow into who all that God has called me to be. See, you were designed, whether you believe it or not, to be an extension of the essence of God. You were designed and created by God to be his extension, to be his essence, literally a, a picture of his essence. You were designed in the image of God, the imago dei. That's who you are. And some of you from the outside of this message, you could just say, you know what, I'm just going to be honest and I'm not going to deny it today. I'm a chicken but I want to be a falcon, but I don't know how to fly. And I got all these scratches and all these issues all over my knobby knees because I don't know how to fly. But I want to become a falcon. And watch this, watch this. Just because you become a falcon does not mean that your brain understands you've been changed. That's the problem, isn't it? Is that when a person does get born again, the old passes away and the new becomes doesn't mean that I instantly know what actually I have become. The measure of my growing has to flow with the measure of my knowing. I have to know. Know not only who Christ is, but who he has created me to be in him. So the Lord over the last few weeks, he's helped me to understand. And I felt that the Lord really said to me, Craig, when I called you, I called you clearly and created you to go there. And, and I don't know if it's just me. If it is, I'll preach to myself today. But I find it really easy. It's real sneaky of how as we begin to go without even realizing it, it is so easy to stop going in that direction. And we settle. We settle. 
We're in a series called Exiles. Exiles means sojourner, means alien, means passerby, means pilgrim. I'm going to title today's message, Sojourners Can't Settle. Sojourners can't settle. Exiles don't settle. Exiles keep moving. And it's so easy, man. It is so easy that when God says to go there, we stop here. And within all of us, as the children of God, you have to understand there is a desire to go. And it's not just because it's a command of Jesus. It's because it's what we've been designed to do. And oftentimes we're tempted to stop along the way. And here's why. I got a super practical message for you today. Whenever there is difficult to get to, there will always be a temptation to stay right here. Always. To stay right here. There's this passage in Genesis chapter 11, a moment in time in, 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 in history in the nation of Israel, particularly the calling of Abraham, where God called someone to go and they decided to stop along the way. Let's read. Genesis 11, 31 and 32. One day Terah and his son, or took his son Abram. Terah is a, is a the patriarch, he's the father of Abram, but he was, a, he was a pagan. He was not a follower of Christ. And he took his daughter-in-law Sarah, his son Abram's wife, and his grandson Lot, his son uh, Heron's child, and moved away from Ur of the Chaldeans, like eastern, present-day Iraq, and went directly west. And he was headed for the land of Canaan, Israel. But they stopped, see that? They settled at Haran. They settled there. And Terah lived for 205 years, and he died not in Canaan. He died while still in Haran. What I want to talk about today is, if I can do this in a very practical way, Eight reasons why many of us choose to stop and settle when God tells us to continue to go. Many reasons why we are stuck on the conversation of chickens and falcons and right and wrong and good and bad rather than the old and new. Now all of us, I want to tell you from the outset, we've got different reasons why we settle. Okay, It would be real refreshing. I'm not going to make you do it today. I've thought about just making everybody just raise your hand on each one. Each one of the reasons, it would just be a real good exercise of therapy and confession. But I thought, you know what? I'll just go ahead and tell you, I've been all eight. So internally, just raise your hand internally, okay? I've been raising my hand up here. But let me talk about eight reasons why people settle, why they stop going. Number one, obstacles. 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 Number one reason why people stop is obstacles. Let me tell you what obstacles sound like. Obstacles sound like something keeps getting in my way, Pastor Craig. Something keeps falling on my path. Now, let me talk to you for a moment if obstacles are the number one reason you stop when God says go. Listen, if occasional obstacles intimidate you, divine destinations will usually elude you. They'll evade you. Why? Why is that? Because obstacles are a part of every path God asks us to walk on. Isn't that encouraging? I mean, isn't that really encouraging? Every path God asks us to walk on has obstacles. So the question on the journey is not whether or not you're going to have obstacles or not. The question is what is going to be your perspective of those obstacles. You're going to have obstacles, but how are you going to look at those obstacles? Look at Romans chapter 8. Paul, in the midst of giving this whole chronic diatribe of the security we have in Jesus, called the pinnacle. It's like the Mount Everest of Scripture, right? Romans 8. And he gets down towards the end of it, and he says this in verse 37. He says, yet in all these things, what? In all these things, all obstacles, life or death, things created, uncreated, things uh, visible or invisible. He said, in all these things, we are, watch this, more than conquerors through him who loved us. In spite of all these obstacles, we are more than conquerors. Y'all, I don't know that we always act like that. 
Being more than a conqueror means fully understanding that even the biggest obstacles for us as believers are something to step up on rather than be stopped by. And that's not just some cheesy mantra. Listen, the problem is, is if you see obstacles as the number one reason for settling, it's because you see them as stop signs. When I believe wholeheartedly that every obstacle God allows in your life, he is designing to be a step stool. Now that sounds like Facebook preaching. I understand that. That sounds so cheesy. That sounds such a easy believism, but that's the truth. What perspective do I have in the journey God has called me unto himself? If I see an obstacle, I can see it as a ladder in front of me. Why? Too many of us see obstacles as roadblocks and God is saying, don't let something I've designed to grow you become the number one way the enemy stops you. You are more than a conqueror. And boy, Satan's good at this. He will throw obstacles in our path. It is amazing how when people, and you're, as a pastor, I get to see this, right? I see this all the time. People make a decision for Jesus, and people always ask why I go after those people so hard. I try to throw as many nets around that fish as I can. And it is the, it is the most painful thing as a pastor to experience people spiritually defecting. It, it's the most painful thing. When you watch people who you've invested in spiritually defect, it, it sucks. No one wants to sign up for that. It's horrible. It's horrible. But I, I will, we will have people, even in our own church, they come to know Jesus, and then I know based upon the marriage they're in, the relationships they're in, oh my God, it's going to take everything within us as a community to throw nets around them, to trust the Spirit of God with them, and, and, and do all that we can to see them start the journey. And soon as they make the decision, every obstacle known to man comes up in their life, comes up in their marriage, and it ticks me off. I'm gonna tell you, sometimes I got so frustrated early on in my ministry, it almost wanted me make me be a Calvinist. Because I'm like, like I, I don't even know if people can be saved unless like God wills it and like just makes it happen. Because it, it ticked me off so bad. Watching people make a decision and then defect and then defect and go back and go back and go back and go back. Now I'm not, I'm not, but I'm telling you, that's how frustrated I was. That there is... There is this propensity for the enemy to throw obstacles in our way. And what I'm doing today, not doing today, is telling you to get over it. Like I, you have a lack of empathy. Oh, just get over your obstacle. That's not what I'm telling you at all. I'm telling you, man, ask God for a little bit different perspective of the obstacle that's on your path. Why? Because you're more than an overcomer through Christ who loved us. Here's the second reason why people stop. Second on the list, a lack of resources. A lack of resources. Now, this might hit home for many of us. A lack of resources. Let me tell you what that sounds like. I don't have what I need to go there, Pastor Craig. I don't have what I need to be that. I don't have what I need. I can't go there. I can't do that. Here's what I've learned. When I begin to focus on a lack, it reminds me that I have become unfocused on the Lord. Seriously, that should be the telltale sign. I'm no longer focusing on the Lord when I can't get my, my head off of lack. Now, Craig, are you saying that we have all that life can give? No, I'm just saying that David, in perhaps the most famous psalm that's ever been read, or written for that matter, that's read at every funeral, Psalm 23 verse 1, the shepherd's psalm, this is what David said in his brilliant statement. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. That means I shall not be in want. Now is David saying I have everything there is to have in life? No, he's saying since the Lord is my shepherd, I don't always have what I want and I don't even sometimes have what I need. But you know what? I am constantly in touch with the one who has everything. The Lord is my shepherd. 
Go back to 2 Peter, that passage we read. Look what he says in verse 1. I want you to leave this up there. He says, we've received, look at verse 3. We have received all of this by coming to know him. We've received all of this by coming to know him. In other words, the measure of growing is knowing Jesus. The measure of your growing is how much are you knowing and continuing to learn about Jesus. And the one, watch this, who called us to himself. This is beautiful language, folks. Beautiful language. Whenever we think about calling, we tend to think about calling in terms of intention. We tend to think about calling in terms of purpose. We, we think about somewhere we're supposed to go, right? That's how we think about calling. Like, what is your calling? What is your calling in life? And we connect calling to destiny. We connect calling to purpose. We connect calling to intention. And yet it says here, the one who has called us to himself. So let me be very clear. This scripture is very clear to me that any future that God calls you to will be a call to himself. I know that seems so simple. I told you today's message is simple. That means God doesn't call you to a future that does not include you getting closer to himself. Any call in the future of your life will be a call to greater intimacy with Jesus. Or it's not his call. If his call takes me away from him, it's not the call of God. It's not the call I should heed. And here's the beautiful thing, y'all. But it is a terribly maddening thing. Jesus is not static. He's always moving. How can we live with this living God? Right? It's hard. It's difficult. This is what it means to be people of the Spirit. He's moving so fast that we're delusional. Our heads are spinning. We don't know how to keep up with Him. We don't know. What makes us people of the Spirit is that we throughout history have tried to stomach our motion sickness. We can't keep up with Him. God is not an idol that can be changed or held by human hands. Just when you think you got Him, He leaves. Just when you think you understand Him, He goes. Just when you think you've seen all that you can see, you see a different part of the prism. This is what we're going to talk about next week on Pentecost Sunday. It's going to ruffle our feathers, but to realize we, we realize He is a living God, y'all. You know what that means? He accommodates the weakest among us. We can't keep up with a God who's moving that fast. We kill Him. That's what they did. They killed Jesus. We don't know how to follow that kind of living God. It's so difficult. Did you know God upholds covenants he didn't make? Did you know God breaks his own law? We don't like that kind of God, yet he does it all throughout Scripture. We don't, we don't know how to, how do you live with this kind of God? You think people are hard to live with. Try to live with God. I mean, he's moving all the time. But when we create religions, what do we do? We create statues. And we create icons that we can get our hands on. See, God's not useful. He's not useful. Walter Brueggemann, my favorite theologian, he said, I can sum up the entire Ten Commandments in one statement. God is not useful. If you want to win a war, you get a war, God. If you want financial blessing, you get a financial blessing, God. But see, God's not useful. He won't be used for any purpose you want him to be used for. We don't like that. He's faithful, but he's not predictable. Here's how you know that you've stopped living, following a living God. God becomes predictable to you. That's how you know. That's the telltale sign. You've stopped following. You're no longer moving. 
you're settling. He is a living God. So, so in religion, we create statues. So we go to Buddha. We go to the Virgin of Guadalupe. We go to the mosque. We go to the shrine. We go to the temple. And we think somehow now, we end up with this false notion that God is static and he's no longer moving. And what we think as Christians from the Judeo-Christian God, that God's just sitting somewhere waiting for us to come to him. But let me tell you, if God is anywhere, church, he's in your future calling you to it. If God is anywhere, he's in the future calling you to it. And if you want to be close to God, you have to move forward as he calls you alongside of him. There's no way to be close to God and be static. You're going to have to move. You have to be dynamic. You have to keep moving. Yes, there is a rest in him. No doubt that the rock finds rest. But the rock who is Christ in the wilderness is always moving. And for some of this, this can explain so much of your spiritual journey. It's like the light bulb goes off today. Because there's been a time in your life where you felt close to God. Am I right? You felt really near to God. You felt the nearness of his presence, but now you don't feel that anymore. And you're trying to figure out what happened. Let me tell you what happened. I'll be really clear with you what happened. You were close to God, but God is not static and you got static. You stopped moving. You settled. You didn't go forward. Whenever God has given us everything we need to live life in him. Listen, listen. I'm not trying to demean spiritual experiences, but God is not just trying to change you and me through experiences. He's trying to change you and me through relationship. God's not trying to change your behavior to get you as a chicken to start acting like a falcon. He's trying to change your essence to become the falcon, to internally change you. And somehow, somehow I don't know how we do it, y'all, but somehow we always make knowing Jesus secondary. Am I the only one that does this? Am I the only one? So, so, so we, we, we meet him, and then everything else we want in life, we want knowing him to be secondary to him fulfilling that desire. Or we want to use him to get what we think he's calling us to, right? And so we make knowing him so secondary. And the moment, watch this, you become so focused on some spiritual experience or become so focused on some spiritual gift. See, that to me is the tragedy inside our own Christian faith is that when we put so much focus, I believe in tongues, I believe in spiritual gifts, I believe in miracles, I believe in all of those. But when we put so much focus on that, what happens is by necessity, we make Jesus secondary to the experience. And I'm like, really? Like some kind of spiritual gift can bring me closer to God than God himself? Y'all, there's no experience in the future God wants you to have that somehow makes you closer to him other than him. So we can put it from our memory. We can put it from our, our deal. I've given my children, I got three children, a lot of gifts in life. But did you know none of them have ever brought them closer to me? Seriously. I know that's funny, but seriously. I've never given my kids a gift that brought them closer to me. You know what that guy that's buying all the bling for his wife, you want to know really what's happening? They ain't close. Okay, don't be fooled, ladies. They ain't close. Okay, if he's, if, if he's buying all that bling, he's trying to make up for distance. I don't want to step on any toes, but that's, that's what's happening, okay? There ain't no close. There ain't no closeness when you're trying to overwhelm with gifts. No, no, no. There is no gift that God will give you that will bring you closer to him except him giving you himself. So that's where we focus. The measure of my growing is level of my knowing. I'm gonna grow in knowledge of him. Look what he said in 2 Peter 1.4. This is so powerful. He says, and 
because of his glory and excellence, because of his glory and excellence, he's given us great and precious promises. Remember, we're talking about lack of resources. If lack of resources is the reason I settle, because of his glory and excellence, he's given us. You know what that means? Look at that. All of God's promises are an extension of his essence. Have you ever just sat back and reveled in this reality? I mean, seriously. I don't know how it's to say it. Sometimes I have a hard time. This is the task of a preacher to say something so simple, but to not just hear the simple thing, but to actually revel in the reality. Have you ever just sat back and reveled in the reality? The reason I can laugh and the reason I can dance and the reason I can celebrate my friend and the reason we can have fun and the reason I can celebrate and the reason I can feel emotion is because that is who God is. That's who he is. And when you experience the best of life, it's only a small taste of who God is in his essence. Listen, the life God longs for us is the life he is for us. He is for us. And every promise of God flows out of the essence of who he is. So do I really have a lack of resources? Third reason why people settle, impatience. Now, this one might hit us all between the eyes. Impatience. I'll go ahead and raise my hand. Number one reason I settle, impatience. Let me tell you what impatience sounds like. I'm sick and tired of having to wait. I'm sick and tired of waiting. In Numbers chapter 21, the children of Israel are in a unique place, aren't they? They've left slavery, Egypt, but they've not yet arrived in promised land, Canaan. So they're in the in-between. Now, do y'all want to know how people act in the in-between? You want to know what human behavior looks like after being set free from Egypt but not having Egypt out of us yet, right? Because that's what true freedom is. Freedom's not getting out of Egypt, it's getting Egypt out of us, right? It's understanding that we've been made true peregrine falcons. And so here are these human behaviors that rise up in the midst of this kind of middle age. What's this? (laughs) From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. What's this? And the people became impatient on the way. I know none of you have ever been impatient, but... I'll I'll preach to me. And the people spoke against God and said, and Moses, and said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food and no water. And we load this worthless food called manna that's feeding our bodies. It's keeping us alive every day. Isn't it amazing what we complain about when we get impatient? We actually start taking the blessings of God and we start complaining about it. That's what we do. It's what impatience does. And that's why impatience is so ugly. That's why impatience sounds so ugly. That's why it perceived to be so ugly. Impatience is our way of telling God, while you may have all strength, you certainly don't have enough speed. Oh, I appreciate you telling me how strong you are, God, but come on, you know, we're waiting here. Impatience has an ugly sound to it. Why? Let me tell you why. Whenever you are frustrated that you are not already there, you'll always be angry where you currently are. So you'll never have a present. So you can never be present in God and content if you're impatient because where you are, you're currently mad because you're not where you think you should be. So impatience is really ugly and it smells real ugly and it sounds really ugly. And impatience is the ugly way of telling God you are slow. Now let me ask you a question, okay? If impatience is the number one reason you stop when God says go, let me ask you a question. Is God perfect? Yes, he is, right? 
So that means everything God does is perfect, which means when God does everything he does, it is perfect. Because if his timing were not perfect, his work would not be perfect. You understand this? So we can't say God is perfect and then say, he's in, say his timing's not perfect because if his timing was imperfect, then his work or when he did that work would actually be imperfect. So impatience comes, watch this, from an imperfect perspective on God's perfect timing. That's what impatience is. An imperfect perspective on God's perfect timing. And when we live impatient long enough, what happens is we make it a habit and we believe we are exempt from the process of God. Right? Patience, on the other hand, is the behavior of those who understand the beauty and benefits of God's process. Look, I'm gonna be vulnerable. Focus in. Oftentimes, when God asks me to wait, which is usually 99.99999% of the time, when God asks me to wait, watch this, it's one of the biggest ways in his process where he teaches me and reminds me where I'm going is not nearly as important as the one who's going with me. God is not interested in me reaching some destination He's interested in me being with him. That's all. That's all I want for my kids. And I'm an evil father, Jesus called me. So I begin to think that somehow where I end up is more important than who I end up there with. And impatience, again... Brings me to that place. If you embattle impatience, listen, see, see God's request to wait as God's gracious act of giving you more time to prepare. See, anytime God asks us to wait, you know what he's doing? He's giving us more time to prepare. He's given us time to work through the idols in our own heart. Here's the fourth reason why people stop is fear of the unknown. Fear of the unknown. Some of you say that's my number one. Fear of the unknown, right? This is what fear of the unknown sounds like. I'm afraid of what might happen, Pastor Craig. I'm afraid of what happens. We call this categorically worry. We call it anxiety. I wonder how many of us spend more time gripped by the fear of what might happen than there are, there are those of us who spend so much time energized by the dream of what could happen. In other words, there was a study done by University of Pennsylvania years ago, and I know it was only about 1,000 people, but nonetheless, they found out that about 85% of the things that people worry about never end up happening. About 85%. So out of the 15% of the time when it did happen, catch this, 90% of that time, the people found out one of two things. Either it wasn't as bad as they expected or they were more prepared than they thought they were prepared. So you know what that tells me? Over 90% of the time when we are afraid of something happening that might happen, not only does it not happen or if it does happen, we are more ready than we realize or it's not as bad as we thought. So, so when we talk about the fear of the unknown or what might happen, here's what we got to talk about. We got to talk about the fear of the unknown outcomes because that's what we're really saying when we say we fear the unknown. We're fearing the unknown outcomes. And if this is your battle, let me assist you real quick. I personally believe that unknown outcomes are one of God's favorite ways to be romantic with you. Let me explain. If you knew every outcome, if you knew how it would all turn out. How could God do exceedingly abundantly above all you could ask for or imagine? You couldn't, and he couldn't. Why? Because you already know it. How could God make your jaw drop if you knew every outcome? How could God romance you 
into his unchanging nature and character if you knew everything there was to know. There's no way. And God's not going for that. He's going for doing exceedingly abundantly, right? That's what he tells the disciples, that it's not entered into the mind. No eye has seen the things he's prepared for those who what? Love him. That means there's been no human on the planet who's ever had a rightful thought that's even close to the grandeur and majesty of who God is. We've never entertained a thought that's even close to his goodness. We're not even, we're not even scratching the surface of his mercy. We don't even know the half of his true love. Surprises are spectacular when God is the one who gives them. And people say, well, I'm not worried about the surprises of God, Pastor Craig. I'm worried about the surprises of the enemy. I'm like, really? Are you going to spend more time focusing on the enemy who's already defeated and what surprises he's going to bring? Or the God of the universe who is right now in heaven already devising a plan in a new way to tell you and to show you just how much he loves you this week. To woo you more. To be faithful to you again. If you battle this, you ready? Rather than get you focused on the outcome, here's what I want you to do. I want you to remember the word overcome. Overcome. Why? Because far more important than the outcome is remembering that the one who has already overcome holds me by the hand every day of my life. He holds me by the hands. Isaiah 41.10, look what he says. The prophet, don't be afraid, God says, no matter what. The unknown, I'm with you. I never leave you nor forsake you. Don't be discouraged. I'm your God. I will strengthen you and help you. Anybody need his strength and help? He will do it. I will hold you up with my victorious right hand. That's God's statement to us. So instead of fixating on the fear of what might happen, I'm challenging us today to begin to dream again about what could happen when God has his way. What could happen? Here's the fifth reason why people settle. Feeling unworthy. Now, y'all, this is the one that breaks my heart the most out of all eight. It's the one that breaks my heart particularly as a dad. I'm a dad of three kids. To think about me hearing my children say to me one day, I appreciate you believing in me, Dad, but I don't, I don't feel like I deserve this from you. Oh, man, can, you, can, can there be a worse statement to hear as a father? Dad, I appreciate you giving that to me, but I just don't feel like I, I deserve it. And if that's you, I'm going to come right into your neighborhood right now with a 95-mile-an-hour fastball by the Spirit of God, all right? Let me, let me just paint this picture. Let's say you're having a garage sale, and you want to sell everything. You know how garage sales work. You got the golf clubs. You got the china that's far overpriced that everybody told you in your wedding showers to get that you'll never use one day in your entire marriage. I'm not bitter about it, but... Um, <laughs> And, and, and then you got this old 80s ratty rock shirt. It's got more holes than fabric. It's got more stains than white spots. And you think, I'm going to sell it. So you're out there and a dude walks up to your garage. And you think, you know what? I can get two bucks for it. So a man walks into the garage and he sees your $500 golf clubs that you've overpriced. He's not impressed. He sees your $100 china set that he is totally, you've totally doubled the price. He's not impressed. Then he goes over to that really stained 80s rock t-shirt. And he says, hey, what do you think this is worth? And you say, ah, $2? And he says, that's ridiculous. And you say, okay, well, what do you think it's worth? How much you give for it? And he says, $5 million. Right now, I'll write you a check for $5 million. Now, would you take that deal? If you wouldn't, you don't need to be in this church anymore, okay? We're in, we're in moving forward mode, okay? So you need to accept that check. If you would accept that million-dollar check, 
Why? Because we know a good deal, especially when we're on the receiving end of it. Now listen, listen. If we can understand the situation like that, why do we have such a hard time understanding just how much God paid for us? If you're in this room today and you battle with feelings of unworthiness, I want you to write this down and I want you to never forget this truth. Here it is. God overpaid for you on purpose. He overpaid for you on purpose. He wanted to send a message. Yes, y'all, I know theologically it took the blood. I get it. I get it theologically why it took the blood of Jesus. I get it. But how many of y'all know God can do more than one thing at one time? And he is sending an extravagant declarative statement to you. You are worth it. First Peter chapter 1, verse 18, 19, and 20. What does he say? He says, you were not bought, what? With gold or silver. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless lamb of God. Watch this. Don't miss this. God chose him. Who? Jesus. As your ransom long before the world began. What does that mean? It means God set your value before he even made you. He set your value before his hand started creating you. He already knew and declared what your value was. It's often said a man is only worth what somebody's willing to pay him. But in God's economy, that's not true. God says a person is only worth what I willingly paid for them. And what he willingly paid is the blood of his son. So if you battle feelings of unworthiness, it's not because your value is low. It's because your calculator stinks. And there is no calculator that can accurately appropriate the value that God places on you. There's no calculator. The only thing that can declare that to you is the precious blood of the spotless lamb of God. Remember, remember, if battles of unworthiness are your battle, hear me. Understanding all God has for you starts with you understanding just how much God paid for you. And you'll never understand how much God has for you till you first understand how much he paid for you. That's where it begins. Here's the sixth one. Feelings of inadequacy. Feelings of inadequacy. Anybody put up your hand internally right there? What does that sound like? I can't do that. I can't go there. I can't be that person. If you find yourself using that language consistently, can I just say it's only because you have bought the lie that the enemy constantly throws at you? You know why the enemy tells us we can't? You know why? I mean, honestly, this is simple, but you know why he tells us? Because listen, if he can convince you you can't, that you're not able to do it, then he dramatically increases the odds that you'll never try to do it. So if he can get you to say, I can't before you try, then you'll never try. You'll never attempt. You'll never risk. You can't be a great husband. You can't be a great wife. You can't be a great dad. You didn't even have a daddy yourself. You can't be a great uh, son of God. You can't be a great child in the kingdom of God. You can't be a great employee. You've never seen what it means to work hard. You can't, you can't, you can't. If you battle, I can't. If you battle feelings of inadequacy, let me take you back to sixth grade. Remember when you were in sixth grade and you were maybe standing at the edge of something that was a, a big deal, like standing about to jump off a bridge into water? That's what I did anyways. And so we'd find cliffs, 20 foot, 40 foot, 80 foot, and you'd be standing there and you're kind of wanting to do it, but you kind of don't want to do it. And then some punk kid in your friend group walks up and what does he say? Ah, you can't do that. You know what I'm talking about? Right there in the navel, there's like a fire and it starts coming up your esophagus. You know what I'm talking about? It's like, what'd you just say? I can't do that. And you're, you're worried about, I mean, the only thing you care about in middle school is being approved and accepted by everybody else around you. So it's actually, so here you are, it's coming up the 
esophagus and you think, you know what? And if you're anything like me, this is what you say all the time. Want to bet? Right? And you jump off. Now here's my question. Here is my question. Why when we're in sixth grade and someone said we couldn't do it, we got a chip on our shoulder and said, you want to bet? Watch me try. Yet when now as adults, when we're more capable than we were in sixth grade, when the enemy says to us, you can't, we sit down in the chair and we say, you're right. Why? Why don't we get a chip on our shoulder and say, you want to bet? Watch me. Don't watch me in my own strength, but watch me in the power of God who gives me the ability to do what he's called me to be. And to do what he's called me. You want to bet? Watch me. You can't ever be a good daddy. You want to bet? Watch me be a good daddy. Who is in, you, you can't ever be a good spouse. You want to bet? Watch me. Watch me. Why do we spend so much time agreeing with his lies? 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul said this. He said, I pleaded God three times to take this thorn out of my flesh. And God says, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. My grace is sufficient for you. And you know what he comes to? He says, that's why, verse 10, I take pleasure in my weaknesses and the insults and hardships and persecutions. Why? Watch this. For when I am weak, then I am strong. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Listen to me. If you battle feelings of inadequacy, you are closer to strength than you think you are. Why? Because real strength starts with true weakness. If you haven't gotten to true weakness, you won't ever move to true strength. So if you get to a place where you feel inadequate, what happens when you feel adequate, by the way? What do you do when you feel like you can do it? You try to do it in your own strength. What, what do you do when you don't feel like you can do it? You lean into God, and that's where real strength takes place in our life. Feelings of inadequacy. Here's the seventh one. What lies behind, which is our past. Seventh reason why people stop is, is their past. So what happens is, it sounds like this, but I've done something that disqualifies me, Pastor Craig. I, the reason people stop is because every mistake I did back there voids what God wants to do up here. So I begin to never be disattached from my past because I keep dragging my past into my future. And this is what God says in Psalm 103, verse 12, as it relates to our sins. He says, listen, he has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. Okay, I understand that, Craig, but how do I live that? What does that mean? Well, 1 Corinthians 13, which is the passage called love, right? We always use it at weddings as if it's a wedding passage. It's actually not. It's a brotherly and sisterly love in Christ. It can be used in marriage, but that's not its goal for intention or writing. And when you read 1 Corinthians 13, it says, love keeps no record of wrongdoing. You know that? So let's put two and two together. 1 John 4, 8 says God is love. 1 Corinthians 13 says love keeps no record of wrongdoing. So let's use the law of syllogism. If A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. So let's do that. If God is love and love keeps no record of wrongdoings, God keeps no record of wrongdoings. He keeps no record of wrongdoings. So what that means is if you constantly keep hearing a record in your head of you can't, you can't, you can't, you did this, you did that. That is not God speaking to you. If you consistently hear and beat yourself up over your past every time you hear what you did, what you didn't do, all your wrongdoing, it's not the one who loves you that's talking to you. It's the one who hates you. It's the one who hates you. And you've got to understand something. I want to give you a 60,000 foot flyover in three minutes about the nature of the Trinity that will help you maybe understand this and then we're going to move to our last reason. Think about this. In John chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, which is what we call the, the discourse of Jesus, it's where time slows down 
Everything's been moving fast, and now he spends four chapters on one night. And he's talking to the disciples, and he starts using this language of father and son, father and son. And what that does, if we're good readers of the text, is it causes us to ask the question, what are the implications of the Trinity? What does it mean to, be, to say God is a Trinity? Okay, What does that mean to be able to faithfully say God is a Trinity? The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, the Christian writer Justin Taylor, years ago, he put me on to thinking about this in a little bit different way, and it's helped me. Because maybe you, like me, have heard all kinds of crazy analogies, and they break down. Like maybe you heard God is a three-leaf clover. One clover, but like three petals. Or you've heard God is water. So it's three different forms. Frozen, solid, it's still H2O. Steam, if it's heated up by, beyond 212. And uh, if it's below 32, it's, it's frozen, right? And so it's like three different forms of the one essence. But all of those actually are heretical. They break down. So instead of trying to analogize the Trinity, Justin Taylor started getting me to think about in terms of who and what. Who and what. Now we can, exp- we, can, we can use this in all kinds of different characters. Let me just give you a couple examples. Think of Jack Bauer from 24. Who is Jack Bauer? Who is he? He's Jack Bauer. What is he? He's a human. Particularly, he's a man. Who? Jack Bauer. What? A man. Or think of Chewbacca from Star Wars. Who is he? Chewbacca. What is he? A Wookiee. He's a Wookiee. What is he? Wookie, who is he? Chewbacca. Or Optimus Prime from Transformers. Who is he? He's Optimus Prime. Watch this. What is he? Oh, he, he, he's actually two things. He's actually a truck and he's a robot. See, we as humans are all one who and we are one what. Optimus Prime is one who and two what's. The Bible says God is three who's and one what. God is three persons existing as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now think about that. That means God's always existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit because every nature of God is eternally true about him. It didn't start at some point in God's makeup. It is in God from God's beginning and God has no beginning. He's eternal. So what is true of God is true of him eternally. That's his values. Now think about this just for a moment. The most popular passage we ever preach, Matthew 28, 19 and 20, the Great Commission. Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Notice Jesus, this is Jesus. I think we can trust his words did not say go baptize them in the names of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He doesn't say we're to baptize them as if they're three plural different gods. No, there's one name being shared by Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But also on the converse, Jesus doesn't say baptizing them in the name Father, Son, Spirit. As if the Father, Son, and Spirit are three aspects of God or the three different hats that God wears. Jesus says we are to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. One name, three persons, a God who has always existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now watch this. Since God is like that, he's making the most unique claim in history. Why? Because there are many people who don't believe in God. That's our atheist friends. There's many people who believe in many gods. That's our Hindu friends. There's many people who believe in one God. That's our Jewish friends and our Muslim friends. But the God of Christianity, the Judeo-Christian God, is one God, but who has always existed as three persons. And not only is it unique, when we understand the Trinity, oh, it will bring so much beauty to our lives. Why? Because if God's always existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then God has always existed as love. 
That means God has always existed as friendship. There's never a time when God wasn't a friend. There's never a time when God wasn't a community. So God didn't start becoming loving when we showed up as if we were the first opportunity for him to love. He loved always. He always loved within himself. He's always existed as love. So we can say God is love. He's always been love. All of God's relational qualities are eternally true of God. So the Trinity makes sense of so much of what we feel as humans. Why? The deepest longings of humans. It's why community matters. It's why isolation is so painful because you were created in the image of God and God doesn't know isolation. He doesn't know it. It's not his essence. And in fact, I would say, if God is not Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then we actually don't have a gospel at all. We don't have a gospel at all. And he says we're partakers in the divine nature. Did you have any idea you were a partaker of the divine nature? Anybody? Jesse, go ahead and come up. I think sometimes because we're afraid of what God might do if we really believe humans are made in his image, we, we create this big divide. Like God's up there and he has his nature and then I'm here and I have my nature. And we've been taught we're all, fal- are all chickens and we're serving a divine falcon. And we aspire to be falcons, but we're chickens who are narcissistic, have a narcissistic delusion of grandeur. And we should just give up and not be a falcon. Why would God ever make you a falcon? Wouldn't that be competition for him? But yet it tells us in this verse that God created us as falcons, but then we chose the safety of domestication. So we lost our ability to fly and our wings became weak and our feet adapted to walking on the ground. But I was actually never called to walk on the ground. I was called to live in Christ Jesus. I was called to soar into the plan and purpose he had for me before the foundation of the world. Listen, let this sink in in a moment. You were created in the image of God. You were designed out of the essence of God. You are called to live in communion with God. Jesus prayed we would be one with him. Jesus is restoring to you the divine nature you were created to live in. It's supposed to come out of the flow of who you are. You are not a chicken. You're not a chicken. You have been called by God to be a falcon. But the problem is if you've been living like a chicken long enough and you've been living year after year, then somehow one day you're transformed into a falcon. It may take your entire life for you to realize that you're not a chicken anymore, that you're actually called to fly. And some of you are still living like you were because you don't know who you are. And you can't access who you are if you don't know who you are. If God doesn't make you aware every day when you wake up, the resource of heaven lives in you. Y'all, how can we be so deceived that the God who created everything, the God who dwells in eternity, lives in us and we still are somehow convinced we lack something? How? How can we, how can that even be possible? What do you lack? God lives in you. You're made in his very image. And nothing can separate you from his love. (laughs) Whoa, you're talking about walking up out of church today with some confidence? And undeterred hope, unswervingly professing, no matter what comes my way, I don't lack anything. No. Everything I need to live the life he's called me is already in me. It's already in me. I'm a falcon. Not a chicken with knobby knees. I'm a falcon. I'm not trying to become a falcon. I am a falcon. 
So let me access the qualities that God gave me as a falcon when he recreated me. And then I grow. The eighth and final reason why people stop is, is strongholds. Strongholds. And what do they sound like? They sound like this. I'll never be able to change it. I'll never be able to get rid of pornography. I will never defeat overwhelming habitual masturbation. I will, I will never be able to overcome my addiction. And sometimes when you go to some churches, it's like they, they overcomplicate strongholds. It's like you gotta go to an eight-hour seminar to define it. Either I'm really dumb or they're a whole lot smarter than me, but there's only one verse in the whole New Testament for strongholds because we don't need 10,000 verses. We just need one. Can I just define what a stronghold is? A stronghold is an incorrect pattern of thinking based upon a lie that we allow to become our way of thinking. That's what a stronghold is. And the longer you live in the stronghold, the harder it is to see it fall. Let me give you a better definition. It's when we begin to live or believe a lie so much that it turns into the truth. Now we can't separate right from wrong. You'll always be an alcoholic. Your dad was an alcoholic. You'll never give up porn. How would you ever do it? You've done it for 10 years. You'll always struggle with addiction. You've always had some kind of addiction in your life. My question is, does that sound like God's voice? No, it sounds like pronouncements of curse, not blessing. And let me give you the easiest way, easiest way to tear down a stronghold. And it's the only way to tear down a stronghold, which is built on a lie. You have to stand on and in the truth, church. On and in the truth. There's only one verse in the entire New Testament given to strongholds, 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5. Paul said what? He said, our weapons of warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty in God and pulling down strongholds. Lies that have become my pattern of thinking. They cast down every argument, every high thing that sets itself against the knowledge of God. If you find yourself battling, saying, I'll always struggle with this, I'll never get free from this. That is a stronghold and you can get free from that. But you have to start acknowledging the lie. You have to start acknowledging the lie. You have to start acknowledging the lie and stand on and in the truth. There's sometimes I get so frenzied, y'all, like yesterday. Yesterday was a really, really tough day for me. Extremely tough day. I don't know why it was. I don't know where it came from, but it was a tough day. It was a challenging day. And when I get frenzied and I feel that my vision's coming in tight and 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 and, and things are, are swirling around me, sometimes I'll get alone by myself and I'll say, that's not my father talking. That is not how my God talks. That is not how my God talks. That is not how my God talks. My God does not talk like that. The I am does not. And sometimes you think, oh, I'm going to do it five times and it'll go away. No, it won't. Sometimes you do it for five hours and you're going on to six hours and seven hours and you're like, why in the world is this stronghold not breaking? Here's the reality. You have to keep speaking the truth, standing on the truth and living in the truth. Why? Because the weapons of our warfare are mighty in God. And then finally, it'll break. It'll break. That's not how my God talks. You think my God's going to confuse me to try to lead me a certain way? Oh, you think God's going to come to you and cause you to doubt your calling now that you felt in the secret place years ago and cause you to doubt and doubt and frenzy? That's how God talks? Come on, folks. It's a stronghold. My God didn't talk like that. Mm -mm. He didn't talk like that. So which one are you? Which one are you? Obstacles? Lack of resources? Impatience? Fear of the unknown? Feeling unworthy? Feelings of inadequacy? Your past? Strongholds? So the question is not why do I stop? The question is really what do I do now that I have stopped? Let me tell you, the Lord just spoke this very clearly to me. He said, tell my people 
two things. Number one, just confess it. Just acknowledge that you've stopped. Just acknowledge it. I've stopped. And then he said, number two, repent. What is repent? It just means to change your course. And when God hit me, I'm thinking he's going to spank me. And he says, no, just stop. You're stopping and get going. Acknowledge that you've stopped. Is there, is there a trick right there, Craig? Do I have to kind of... No, you, you stand up and you walk. You stop the stopping and you get going. Why? Because God's in your future and he's calling you to it. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.